But uh, for the Sunday, we are going to pause for a moment to consider how the incarnation, the Lord Jesus Christ coming in the flesh as a baby, how that should impact our lives as individuals and in the church. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find Philippians chapter 2 on page 980, 980. And uh, we will read that here. We're going to start in actually Philippians uh, 1 here in a minute and read the tail end of the chapter to get the context. But you know, during this time of year and during the Olympics, there's no end to the stories and movies and news broadcasts of those who have been raised out of the ashes of rags to riches. Uh, You've probably never heard a Christmas story or Christmas movie that did just the opposite, where they went from riches to rags and they, were, they stayed there, right? That wouldn't be a very good Christmas movie. Hallmark would not make any money off of that. But Mark Twain wrote a book that was entitled The Prince and the Pauper. It's one of my favorite books that I read uh, back in school. Now, Prince and the Pauper is a f- historical fiction about uh, Edward, actually King Edward VI, while he's still a prince, And he runs across a pauper, a poor boy from the city, who always dreamed about being a prince. And the beggar was getting into trouble with some of the court officials, and Edward said, no, hang on a second, he's with me. And they find out that they look alike. And so Edward decides, well, we'll we'll give him a swap here. Let's let him wear some of my royal robes and I'll wear some of his rags. Well, in the midst of them being dressed up like the other person, some court officials threw what they thought was the beggar out of the palace, which ended up being not the beggar, but the prince. And Prince Edward goes on to live on the streets, ends up suffering the abuse that this young boy suffered under the hands of his father, all the time trying to convince people, listen, I am not the beggar, I am Prince Edward. I should be in the palace. Eventually, by the end of the book, Edward is restored and about the time for his coronation as king, and he honors the beggar, but he takes his clothes back on, and the story has a good ending. Now, I always enjoyed that story because of the themes that we see in the gospel, particularly the incarnation of Christ, Christ becoming and living in this world among his subjects. But there's some very drastic differences between the two stories at the same time, however. Now, Prince Edward and Prince and the Pauper did not intend to be thrown out of the palace. He did not intend to live among the people, the common people, like a beggar. And he did everything within his power to make sure everyone knew that, no, I am Prince Edward, I belong in the palace. But the Bible shows Jesus to be of a different mindset than Prince Edward. No, it was always the plan of Jesus and the Father and of the Spirit that as a result of creating this universe and creating man in his image, that Jesus would take on the flesh of his creation. That he wouldn't just swap dirty rags for his royal robes, but he'd swap moral accounts 
with his lawless people. Taking their shame, taking their punishment, and yes, even their death. Today in the passage that we're going to look at, as we think about this incarnation, as we think about the birth of Christ, we realize he didn't come just to be a cute little baby. There were greater purposes in mind, eternal purposes of the Father. And in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, have this same mind of Christ in you. So we're going to consider how should the incarnation of Jesus impact our lives today? How should the fact that Jesus took on flesh by being born as a baby impact the way we treat one another in the body? How should it shape our church? You know, we live in a world that's full of people raising their fists in the air in rebellion, demanding the respect of others. And if you don't treat me the way I want to be treated, you should be silenced or even criminalized. There is a refusal to take responsibility for wrongs done and instead rather shifting the blame and justifying my actions based upon the actions of others. What would be true of us today if Jesus had walked through life with those kinds of attitudes and those kinds of actions? After all, he truly was innocent. He truly did reserve, deserve all respect. So how should his incarnation, his putting on flesh as a baby, change the way we think, the way we act, and the way we talk today? So let's look at Philippians 1, 27, and we'll read on down through chapter 2, verse 11. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of, any, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of Ben, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory 
of God the Father. In the end of chapter 1, Paul is talking about the opposition that they were facing from without. And he was encouraging them in Christ that this is part of God's plan for them. That the gospel will shine brighter in that persecution, in the opposition. This is actually a gift of God's grace to you. Paul says that opposition will reveal two kinds of hearts in the people. One heart will be one that is, will be destroyed. The other one finds encouragement in Christ in the midst of the opposition. They find comfort in Christ's love. They find a partnership in the Holy Spirit, a helper, a comforter, a guide. And they're recipients of long-suffering mercy that is new every morning. Paul is confident that what Christ started in them, he was going to complete, he said in chapter 1, verse 6. So as he comes here to chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So... If you have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any partnership in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and these things are obviously true in your life, make my joy complete, not only in how you face opposition from outside the church, but also in how you handle opposition from within the church. In other words, the way believers treated one another was greater danger to the unity of this healthy church than any physical opposition from without. He says, he wants to call their attention later, actually in chapter 4, verse 2, that there's two women who were actually evangelists in the church who had partnered with him in the ministry of the gospel. And he says, my true companion, my, my yoke fellow, go help these two women out. This cannot be allowed to remain in the church. So Paul is saying, to have the mind of Christ, you must first of all be in Christ and be partners with the Spirit here in verse 1. And he, he sets it up as four conditional statements. Encouragement in Christ, if any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any partnership or fellowship in the Spirit, and any affection of sympathy. But the way these, these, these statements read is that if these things are true of you, and they most certainly are, then reflect the mind of Christ. He uses these statements as a way of stirring up their heart, of preparing their heart for the truths he's about to encourage them with. How does this stir up their hearts? Well, how did they become partakers of Christ? How are they in Christ? How was it that they're recipients of Christ's love? Was it because they deserved it? Was it because that they have done something that God said, oh, I want to place my love on that person? No, it was because Christ began the work in them. It was God who sent Paul to Philippi to share the good news of them. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. While they were still sinners, Christ died for them. Paul preached to them. It was God who sent the earthquake that after Paul had preached the good news to him, he and Silas were thrown in prison, and they're in there singing praises to God while in chains. But God sends the earthquake, breaks open the doors, and it's because of that that the Philippian jailer is about to take his life, and Paul says, no, 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 we're all here. And the Philippian jailer is moved by God to ask, what must I do to be saved? And as a result of everything that God had initiated because of God's plans, the Philippian jailer and his whole household would be a part of this fellowship, this church that Paul is writing this letter to here in Philippi. God gave them mercy when they were undeserving. 
So who are they to withhold mercy and grace and love from those who are fellow Christians? Paul's not talking about their relationship with the outside church, those who are unsaved. Now, in Romans 12, we learn about how to be at peace with them. That we do as much as it is dependent upon us to be at peace with those who are outside the faith. But then we have to leave room for the wrath of God. You see, because they aren't partners in the Spirit. They haven't received the love of Christ the way we have. And so Paul says, you who have received the love of Christ, you who are partners in the Spirit, there's no excuse. Those who have been received, recipients of grace, you should also extend grace and mercy. For the Spirit of God is your partner. He is your comforter. He is your helper. He is your counselor and your guide. You know, 1 John 4, John writes this about the church. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He satisfied God's wrath. He absorbed the wrath that we deserved. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, one test of whether or not you are in Christ and have partnership with the Spirit is how you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Is there any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. And in verse 5, he summarizes it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So to have the mind of Christ, you must be in Christ and with the Spirit. And Paul says, if you have the Spirit... He's your teammate, and your teammates with one another. Think about an athletic team that was seeking to win, a, a, to, to win the goal, to, to win the prize of the championship. What happens when that team begins competing with each other? No, I want the ball. <laughs> we see that sometimes in NBA, don't we? All the showboaters. It doesn't go as well for them than a the team that knows how to pass. Let's get back to the basics. We're on the same team. We're not seeking to be the one-man team here. We work together. Galatians 5 says, If we live by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So we must, we must be in Christ and with the Spirit to have the mind of Christ. But secondly, in order to have the mind of Christ, as a Christian, we must practice Christ-like thinking Corporately. Have the same love. That's the emphasis. Both sides. Everyone have the same love. Full accord. One mind. All of you work together. It's interesting. In this letter, the introduction is a little bit different than the other letters that Paul writes. He singles out the overseers and deacons. 
He says, all the saints in Philippi and also the overseers and deacons. There is not one person in the church that somehow rises up as being more important, their ideas as being more important than another's. You know, in other places in Paul's writing, Paul will talk about the church as being like the body of Christ. That there is not a member of the body of Christ that is more important than the other, other than the one part of the head, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, each person serves the rest of the body according to the gift of grace that God has seen fit to give to each one. All parts of the body answer to the head. All parts of the body respond to the instructions of the head. All parts of the body are to be unified in purpose and goals that the head has set. Therefore, each one must submit to the mindset of Christ, which we're about to see here in a little bit. Each one must demonstrate the same Christ-like love, the never-ending, unconditional, sacrificial love that Christ demonstrated towards his enemies that we have been called to extend to those who are fellow recipients of God's grace. There are two parts that Paul talks about here that are involved with this cooperative thinking. It's thinking together in one accord, but it's thinking rightly together. Both of those are important. This is a joint effort. When two in the church are not thinking right way together, both parties should be in pursuit of correct thinking and correct thinking together. Matthew 18 is helpful in this. If you see a brother who is not thinking or acting correctly, what are we instructed to do? Speak truth. Because we have to be in one mind. We have to be working together. And if he does not listen to one voice, then you take two or three witnesses together with you into the situation. Now, what is the purpose of the two to three witnesses? Is that for you to come along and say, see, I told you I was right? That's not the case. The point of, of the two to three witnesses takes us back to the Old Testament. And, and God established for the nation of Israel that you, should, that you can account anything and verify anything as true based upon the account of two or three witnesses. And so if you and another person in the church are having issues and you come to me and say, I think you're living in sin in this way, they disagree. You bring two to three witnesses in. What's the purpose of the two to three witnesses? To verify what is true. Both of you humbly coming to us and saying, am I thinking wrongly about this? Because we want to be in one accord. We want to be like-minded. I am not concerned at this point that I am bringing my agenda, my ideas, this you, you two, three witnesses, help us see what is true, what is right, what is best here to discern the truth. But then if after the two, three witnesses, there is still a disagreement, one is not in agreement with the other, three or four, and what do you do? You bring it to the larger body, and what's the purpose of that? That the one who is in disagreement is, is let known that you do not belong in this body because you are not like-minded. You are not demonstrating the mind of Christ. You are not partnering with the Holy Spirit here. But Paul would also say the one who refuses to speak truth into the life of, of another. When you think they're living contrary to Christ's likeness, you are contributing just as much to the disunity in the church as one who refuses to listen to the corrective voice of another. 
The emphasis here is that it's full accord. Everyone, every joint supplies to the body. That's why in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, he's going to say, Hey, my fellow worker, my companion, help these two women out. They need to be brought into unity. They need to be thinking the mind of Christ. And you are responsible and a partner in helping them get there. Paul says, be of the same mind. Demonstrate the same love. A one thinking. That is a corporate exercise. So if you are part of the body, you must pursue thinking correctly. But not just thinking together, but thinking correctly about doctrine. You'd be amazed how many times in a membership interview, as part of the interview process, we ask, Have you, are you in agreement with the statement of faith? It's funny, that question always comes first. Oh, yes, I'm in agreement. Have you read the statement of faith? Uh, no. <laughs> so if you're in a membership process, read the statement of faith. See if you're in agreement with it. Do you know what you believe? If you have questions about what we believe as a church, write them down. Let's be in agreement together. But as we look at our church here, we, we are a church that is founded and does everything by the counsel of God's word. This is a unique church. It isn't every church in this city that you could sit down on a Sunday morning and they actually have you open the word and they actually have you read it and we actually walk through the text. It's not every church when you come to for counseling that they sit down with you and say, I'm not going to tell you what I think about your situation. Let's see what God has to say about your situation. You see, because we believe that God's word is authoritative and sufficient for all life and godliness. But there is a danger that lurks in the shadows of a church that is healthy in that way, isn't there? And that danger is that somehow we would become self-righteous in our own thinking. And self-righteous concerning our own lives and think that maybe my way is the best way. You know, we are starting a church in Bargersville, and the one of the reasons that the elders have stated for this timing is because we are a healthy church. But let us be warned that Paul goes on here and he exposes it, that among believers there is a problem that can come when everyone thinks their way is right. So he goes on, he says, what is Christ-like thinking that unifies it's described in verses 3 through 4, and then it's demonstrated in 6 through 11. But he starts here in 3 through 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He begins by saying Christ-like thinking begins with humble repentance. There's two kinds of thinking we must put off. We must put off selfish ambition and put off conceit. When a church is thinking the right way together about doctrine and seeks to apply that doctrine in all of life, this critical attitude of self-righteousness can creep in. We can begin to draw lines where God did not intend lines to be drawn. And we can draw those lines in our minds and then begin to look at the, our other brothers and sisters in Christ and begin to criticize and to judge and condemn 
our brothers and sisters and say, oh, they're not doing it that, they're not, they, they could be doing a lot better. Paul's not saying it is wrong to be ambitious about doctrine and ministry. He is saying that one should not be so focused on one's own ministry ambitions to promote his own agenda, his own ideas and passions, as if his ways, his ministries are somehow more superior to the agendas, the ideas, the passions, and ministries of others, to even the point of minimizing the ministry of what others are doing. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition. I want you to ponder for a moment why you do what you do in the church. Is there any selfish motives involved at all? To build a name for yourself, to build a reputation, to have a following, to sound intelligent, to look good, to pay God back for what he has given to you. We are such self-centered individuals that when you truly evaluate the motives of your heart and what we do and why we do it, isn't it a mixed bag? Sure, yes, I want to glorify God. But is that the only reason? Paul takes it one step further when he says, put off being conceited. This is the point of actually talking up yourself where there's no reality to back it up. It is exaggeration. It is being puffed up. Always talking about what I am doing, my works, my spiritual growth, rather than asking questions about how God is working in others' lives. How are you growing? It's like cotton candy. I, I remember as a kid, every summer, we'd go to the state fair with my grandparents. My grandpa would shear sheep. He was a judge in the shearing sheep thing. We'd watch that. And the last thing of the day was we'd go and we'd get some cotton candy and we'd sit and watch the horse shows. Don't, I have no idea why it was the last thing of the day, but that's what we did. But you know, can't wait for the cotton candy at the end of the day and we sit down and watch the horse shows. And you take that cotton candy, all big and fluffy, right? And don't squeeze it, because then it's not as much. <laughs> but you pop it in your mouth, and it dissolves like a vapor, right? So you put more in. Oh, but you got to share it with your siblings. That cotton candy doesn't go very far. And before long, that cotton candy is all gone. And you think, man, I'm sure am hungry. <laughs> it was wonderful. It was sweet. It was beautiful. It was tasty. But it left me oh so unsatisfied. And that's the way we can be in our lives sometimes, isn't it? To build ourselves up. To build up what we are doing. Now, think about how easy this can become in modern American church. A time, maybe even easier than the Philippian church, 
So you look at the American churches, how do we do things? We have, a, we have a senior pastor, we have a pastor of teaching, we have a pastor of missions, we have a pastor of youth, we have a pastor of children, we have a pastor of administration. I even heard of a church once that had a pastor of parking lot. <laughs> we have deacons. Deacons of finance, deacons of building, deacons of worship, deacons of benevolence, deacons of widows, deacons of children, you know, whatever. On and on and on we go. Now, that's not to say there is, there's not a place for distinct roles and responsibilities in the church. That is necessary to provide proper oversight and shepherding in ministry. However, how easy it has become when we are so divided in those roles, how easy it has become to be solely focused on one area of ministry. How easy it would be for us to be focused on our own specific ministry and think, begin to think somehow that it is more important or it is better than someone else's. Or to begin to judge others for not being involved in my particular ministry. But somehow they've missed what is most important in life. How easy would it be to think that one who is involved in the teaching ministries of the Word in the church are somehow more superior to the behind-the-scenes ministers of the body, like those who are in the nursery every Sunday. John MacArthur says that a genuine passion for important and even necessary ministries can very quickly and unintentionally begin to disregard fellow believers. It can be the seed that produces self-righteous criticism, jealousy, contention, and strife. And according to James 3.16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So what is the Christ-like thinking that unifies? First, it begins with putting off selfish ambition. Putting off the empty conceit. But it also involves putting on the humble-mindedness that Christ had. This is the new garment, Paul says, to put on. In humility, count others more significant. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The conceited and selfish mind considers one's own agendas, one's own ministry, one's own opinions as superior. The humble mind considers others' agendas. What do you think? What do you suggest? How can I help you in what you are doing to serve the Lord? What you are doing is so important. You ask questions. You ask how you can pray for others. Rather than talking about what you do all the time, invite others to share what God is doing in their life. Oh, how different this mindset is from the world around us, isn't it? I mean, people's ideas are splattered everywhere in the world. You need to know my opinion, my thinking, my views. Check out my Facebook page. You want to know how a family runs? Check out my Facebook postings. One who is humble-minded is one who knows God and knows himself from God's perspective. One who goes through the day of his life saying, Lord, search me. See if there's any wicked, any selfish ambition in me today. And lead me in your righteous way. The humble-minded person is one who knows the mind of Christ and desires to think like him and to act like him. So to have the mind of Christ, we must first be in Christ. Secondly, you must practice Christ-like thinking corporately in humble repentance. But the third part, we get to what Christ did. 
we must reflect Christ-like obedience. So for the rest of the time together here this morning, we're going to consider exactly how Christ demonstrated this humility of thinking. In verses 5 through 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to cling to, a thing to hang on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In a world that says, I have a right to be heard, to live life the way I see fit, and for all dissenting voices to be silenced, in this world, Jesus stepped into, who though he was in the form, the very essence, the very nature of God himself, did not consider his equality with God a thing to be, be held on to, to grasp forcibly, but rather he took on the form and the essence the very nature of a servant. How? By being born in the likeness of man. To take on the outward physical appearance of man to the point of being able to die and even die the shameful, the cursed death of being hung on a tree. To fully understand his humility, we have to think about the reality that Christ is truly God. He's both truly God and truly man. But he was truly God in eternity past. He was, became a man in the present. He didn't have the flesh eternally. He took that on. But Jesus demonstrated his deity prior to his, his incarnation. Consider these passages. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were what? Made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Colossians 1. He is not only the Creator, but He is the sustainer. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Catch that. He creates all kings. He sustains all kings. And yet when he came into the world, he submitted to a king that he created. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says that he upholds the universe by the very word of his power. Even while he was in the flesh in human form, he showed his divine attributes, right? There's a list. And every time he did a miracle, he healed a leper by touching but he didn't get leprosy. He healed a centurion's servant by his, by his command from a distance. He wasn't even with him. He healed and cast out demons. He forgave sins and then healed a man to show that he had the ability to forgive sin. He raised the dead. He raised Lazarus after four days by talking to the dead man. And yet we get to Matthew 4... 
There was a time he did not use his divine power. Satan came to him and said, you are hungry as a man. You've been fasting for 40 days. Command these stones to become rocks. And what was his response? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. My desire in the flesh is not as important as my desire to obey my Father's will. And right now, using my divine power to turn rocks into breads does not accomplish God's purposes. That would be selfish ambition. Satan takes Jesus to the, top, to the temple and says, throw yourself off the, off the pinnacle so the angels will, will, will catch you. And again, Jesus refuses, saying this is a misuse of the divine power. I will submit to my Father's will in this. Jesus accepted worshiped. In Matthew 2, you have the Magi coming and worshiping Christ as a baby. In Matthew 14, he stands up in the boat and commands the wind and the water to cease. And those in the boats worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. In Matthew 28, 9 through 10, after resurrecting from the dead, the women, Mary and Mary, come. And Jesus meets them and says, greetings. And they come up and take hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me too. Jesus is truly God. Both before his incarnation and while still in the flesh. He has the full glory that you see on Mount Sinai, that the cloud had to cover. He had the full glory that was in the tabernacle, in the temple, that no man could enter once his glory filled the tabernacle. And yet, in John 17, 4 through 5, as he's getting ready to go to the cross, he prays this prayer. Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. It's an interesting prayer. He's truly God still. The glory is still there, but there is something different at work here. Paul says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In verse 7, he says he emptied himself. But what is this emptying. What is different in his flesh from what he had before the creation of the world? What changed? It is interesting the word behind emptying here was used earlier in our text. The same root word is used back in verse 3 when Paul said, uh, excuse me, in, uh, yes, in verse 3, when he says to put off the selfish ambition or conceit, that empty talking. Paul says, you talk big like you're all that, but it's empty. There's nothing there. He says of Jesus, Jesus is all that, but he's, he's acting like he's empty. He emptied himself. Jesus did not lay aside his possession of divine attributes. What did he lay aside? What did he empty himself of? 
he laid aside the independent expression of his divine attributes. It was his right to rule that he emptied himself of in order to become a servant. And taking on the form of a servant, he submitted to the will of his father in the expression, every expression that he expressed of his deity in the flesh was according to the will of his father, was only to promote the will of his father, was to only accomplish the purposes of his father. Which meant he had to waive his right to that expression whenever the father's will necessitated it. Consider how man responded in the Old Testament to the visible manifestation of God's glory throughout Scripture. Fall on their face, full of fear. Being fear of being struck dead. And yet here is Jesus in the flesh and all of that glory is still there, but it's veiled. Except briefly on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And Peter should have been speechless but tried to say something. But Jesus willingly and voluntarily took on true humanness. To what end would Jesus submit as a man? The Old Testament scholars of the day would claim that Jesus did miracles by the power of Satan. They condemned Jesus for blasphemy, for claiming to be the Son of God, and claiming to forgive sins. The truly innocent one was abused and harassed and treated inhumanely. And Jesus, though he was the creator and sustainer of life, he submitted himself, he waived his right as the creator and sustainer by allowing Pilate and Roman soldiers to whip him 39 times, to tear out his beard, to nail his body to the cross, and to abuse him to the point that Isaiah 52, 14 says, he was marred beyond human semblance. Isaiah 53 says he was despised, he was rejected by man, he was a man of sorrows. Verse 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. The creator, the sustainer, the word of life died and was buried along with sinners. Paul further describes Jesus' humility by adding that Jesus not only was humble and obedient to death, but even death on a cross. The king of all kings hung on a tree. What's the significance behind that? Why does Paul bring out this fact that he was hung on a tree? What makes that so bad? If you go back to the Old Testament again in Deuteronomy 21, you see that this law concerning when a man was, had committed a crime that was punishable by death, he is to be put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is what? Cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Galatians 3.13 picks up the same theme. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was hung on a tree 
because he became a curse for us. He cried from the cross, my father, why have you forsaken me? He was cast outside the camp as the one who was no longer a part of the covenantal blessings. There no longer remained a covering for sin, but he would bear the full weight of God's wrath. There's another aspect being hung on a tree that we see in the Old Testament as well. In Joshua 8 and Joshua chapter 10, we see Joshua going into the land and he's conquering kings as he goes. And in Joshua 8, 29, what does he do to the conquered kings? He hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city. And they raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. Another standing stone, a memorial to what? That Ai was defeated by God. There's a greater king in town. He did the same thing in John chapter, or Joshua chapter 10. What's the picture here? Jesus, as God in flesh, not only became a curse for us. He not only took on the form of a servant... But he did not hang on to his equality with God as a thing he must always express so he would appear to be conquered. He was hung outside the camp as being inferior to Pilate. But don't dismiss what Jesus said to Pilate before going to the cross. Pilate, you have no authority except that which has been given to you by God. And then he says, I have authority to lay down my life and I have the authority to take it up again. But for this moment, for these three days, it's going to appear that I am the conquered king, the cursed one, the one who's forsaken by God. Why? Well, in John chapter 12, he says, my, Now my soul is troubled. Hear his humanness. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. If Jesus had not emptied himself, we would be the ones that would be forever forsaken. Now, mind you, Paul is using this example to encourage Christians to be Christ-like with Christians. <laughs> and yet the picture that he paints is Christ humbling himself for the sake of his enemies. When facing the ultimate curse upon man, Christ prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, it is finished. Hebrews 2 says this was absolutely necessary in order for there to be any hope for us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through the fear of death were subject 
to respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay the defeated king. Three days later he rose again. That was absolutely necessary too. His, his humanity, his humility was necessary. 1 Corinthians 15, 47 through 48. The first man, Adam, was from earth, a man of the dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not forcibly hold on to his position in glory that was rightfully his. Jesus died to his will for the expression of his divinity and only used it when his divine powers were to accomplish his Father's will. Jesus willingly bore the shame and the punishment of his enemies so that they could be reconciled to his Father. And Paul says, let this mind, the same mind, be in you. To encourage your brother and sister, to lift them up, to encourage them in the faith. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. And what was the end? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name, the name, not a name, the name that is above every name. What is the name that is above every name? What is the name that the Jews refused to say? What is God's proper name? Yahweh. The name of the covenant. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every name will one day bow. This is not universalism where every person will eventually be saved. That is not what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is that you will either bow to him in this life or you will forcibly bow to him in the next. For in that day, he will not rule as a king who will lay his, his, himself down at the hand of Pilate to be, to be abused and to be killed. But on that day, he comes back as the ruling king, the king who comes back with a sword in his mouth, and he will execute justice and the land. And he will make all things right. And we long for that day. And he says, the way we are to live today humility, to have the mind of Christ. You must be in Christ. You must have a partnership with the Spirit. You must practice Christ-like thinking corporately in humble repentance. You must reflect Christ's humble obedience. But the question comes to us, first of all, today, are you in Christ this morning? Are you in partnership with the Holy Spirit? Adam raised his fist in the face of God as the first act of rebellion and says, how dare you restrict my freedom from eating from this one tree in the garden? When put that way, it sounds quite silly. 
But how often we have done the same thing. Ever since that first act of rebellion, one person after another, every leader in the Bible after that, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, has raised their fists and said, I want that, God. How dare you restrict me from that? We are full of self-promotion. We are full of selfish ambition and conceit. We run our homes like the king of a castle. We promote our perfectly organized lives. We talk of a storm of accomplishments in the faith, of the lives that we have touched with the sharing of the gospel, souls that we have saved, lives we've put back together, all as if we ourselves had something to do with it. Do you struggle with authority figures and structures that God has put in place in your life? How do you handle correction? Or when someone comes and exposes the sin that's in your life, or when someone challenges you or questions you, do you fight for recognition? Do you want a reputation among men? When you don't get your way, do you run away? Do you make life miserable for those around you? If these things are true of you, if this is what is constantly true of you, the way you tend to be wired... And the way you tend to behave, oh, dear friend, consider the true nature of your heart. For that is not the mind of Christ. And it would indicate that possibly you are not in Christ. But God does not leave you in that hopeless state the comfort of Christ's love and the partnership of the Spirit is that Jesus became a man. He humbled himself. He died. He rose again. And he comes to you and he has given you his word even this morning to say, turn from those selfish ways. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There should be something different in our lives. 1 Peter 2, 21 and 24, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. There should be a difference. But if you are in Christ, you have the partnership of the Holy Spirit. You have experienced his grace, his mercy, and his love. Are you committed to Christ-like thinking in the body? Are you willing to say along with Christ, I am willing to relinquish my own glory, my privileges, my prerogatives, my rights, my ideas, my fill in the blank to serve my brother? How many of my rights am I willing to give up for the sake of my brother or sister? Is there anything in my life that I'm selfishly clinging to for my own benefit while causing strife for those around me? To have the mind of Christ, we must be in Christ. We must practice Christ-like thinking corporately in humble repentance, and we must reflect Christ-like humble obedience. But what's the result? Paul says, make my joy complete in being this way. Complete my joy by being the same mind. Now, here's this Paul. When he went to Philippi, he was thrown in jail. How did he, did he complain? No, that's okay. I'm going to pray a song. I'm going to sing praises to God. Paul, was he, while he wrote this letter, he is in chains. That's okay. 
Now his joy be made complete if they demonstrate the same mindset, love, and partnership with Christ in their local fellowship. Paul's joy did not depend on his own set of circumstances, but rather how others benefited from his life, even very personal expense. Read 2 Corinthians 11. How many times he was whipped? How many times he suffered cold and exposure and shipwrecked? And he says, that's okay. Because it built up the faith of the church. Paul's joy was made complete. Christ was exalted to the glory of God the Father. I'm going to close with a couple passages that show the exaltation of Christ. In Daniel 7 we read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed in Revelation 19, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a, in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. And what is that name? King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ-like thinking leads to joyfully serving with the Spirit for God's glory. Dear friend, do you have the mind of Christ? Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the mystery of the incarnation. Lord Jesus, we fail miserably at walking in humility that you walked in. Lord, we as a church desire to promote you and to promote your ways, to hold to your truth unwaveringly, boldly, without apology. And yet, Lord, in our desire and passion for what is right and true, may we not slip into a spirit of self-righteousness and criticism that would cause disunity, that would hurt the work that you are doing in this world. Lord, we know your accomplishes stand. Lord, may we have your mind. May we die to ourselves daily. Take up our crosses and follow you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close this morning with a, with a hymn of prayer.
go ahead and stand. We're going to sing, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Have